Welcome to episode 28 of the podcast History Does You. Today we'll be covering limited warfare and we had an interview with Dr. Donald Stoker. So before we get into that, I kind of wanted to broadly outline what we'll be covering. And Dr. Stoker has done a ton of work on theory behind war, politics, all those sorts of things. So, you know, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to cover, but I kind of wanted to center around American foreign policy and the way it's been done really from the Korean War up until now and try to examine some of the problems that has gone into sort of the strategic thinking and the way that we've sort of executed those various policy goals because I think it's pretty obvious that a lot of those policies a lot of that strategy hasn't really worked because, you know, we, you know, for example, in Korea, we negotiated a peace without actually achieving sort of a victory that we often associate with war. You know, the same with Vietnam, same with Persian Gulf War, same with Iraq. And then I think we're probably going to see that in some capacity in Afghanistan. So we see these sort of repeat of these various mistakes. So, you know, through this interview, I was hoping to sort of broadly define some of those problems that have come with American foreign policy and some of the ways that we fix that. And one of the things that he'll mention is, you know, really examining history. What does history tell us about war? What does it tell us about the way that we think about it and all these sorts of things? And, you know, I think if you want to understand, you know, some of the more theoretical thinking that goes into these conflicts, I think it's a great interview. If you're not so familiar with this type of thing, there's a host of reading material out there that gets it. And, you know, hopefully through, you know, like a podcast episode, you can get at least a better understanding of, you know, what drives the thinking behind, you know, some of these decisions, because you can read endlessly about it, because, you know, there's tons and tons and tons of, you know, bureaucratic paperwork that often goes into this. So I hope you enjoy it. I personally kind of enjoyed it just as someone personally wants to get involved in this in the future. And, you know, if you're listening to this and want to get involved, I think it's critical that, you know, we really try to examine and take away the lessons of these various conflicts because what we've been doing hasn't really been working. And I would definitely recommend any of Dr. Stoker's work in particular, we get into Why America Loses Wars which is, you know, a really fascinating book. So if you're really interested in any of that, I would recommend all the work he's been doing. I hope you enjoyed the interview and hopefully it gives you a little bit better understanding of the way that limited warfare has influenced American foreign policy from the Cold War till now. On today's episode, we welcome on Dr. Donald Stoker. He is a senior fellow at the Atlas Organization. Before that, he was professor of strategy and policy for the U.S. Naval War College's Monterey program at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California from 1999 until 2017. In 2016, he was a fellow at the Changing Character of War program at the University of Oxford's Pembroke College. In 2017-18, he was a visiting fellow and Distinguished Diplomatic Academy Fulbright Professor of Political Science at the Diplomatic Academy in Vienna, Austria. He is the author and editor of 11 books, including a biography of Karl von Clausewitz, which is in the British Army's professional reading list. His other work includes The Grand Design Strategy in the U.S. Civil War, 1861-1865, which won the prestigious Fletcher Pratt Award, was a main selection of the History Book Club, and is on the U.S. Army's Chief of Staff reading list. So welcome on. Thank you. And then began, what is your favorite subject of history or political science to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how did you become interested in American policy and war? I don't know that I have a favorite anymore. 
I've spent so much time studying so many different things. I've been interested in history since I was a small child, eight or nine years old and completely fascinated by aircraft and memorizing every World War II aircraft that I could possibly do. And just have always been interested in history and military affairs and diplomacy ever since then and did all my degrees in history. And what are some of the challenges that you've encountered in the field? It's a hard question to answer because my interests are so broad. Some of the fields are more difficult than others just to do research in, obviously, because the languages, that slows everything down. Getting funding for history is more difficult than in political science and international relations and fields like that. Funding for research and funding for your education is easier in other fields. I think there's just more interest in them. In certain fields in history, there is more money available lately. Middle East and China and things like that are certainly growth fields. And to get into sort of limited warfare, which is what we'll be talking about today and what you covered in your book, Why America Loses Wars, on the begin, can you broadly define what war and what peace is? War, using violence for a political purpose. And countries go to war to get something or to keep something or to prevent someone from taking something from them. Peace is the absence of war. And of course, there are a lot of people who have written a lot of things on that. What's interesting, one of the biggest objections to my book from many people is that I dare to say there is a difference between peace and war, which in strategic study circles is apparently debated now, which all of history screams the exact opposite, but let's not bring history into the equation here with this. And generally, what drives nations to go to war? Nations go to war because they are forced to by another nation or because there's something they want. And this is driven by politics. You will often hear accidental wars. Oh, people go to war for economic reasons. Sometimes they do. They go to war for religious reasons. Sometimes they do. But almost always the political reason behind that or it's masked by religion or it's masked by an economic factor. Clausewitz tells us that the political and he goes back to that over and over. And that's just the more I study, the more I know he's right and just keep going back to that. And where does this sort of idea of limited warfare come from? What is it and how has it influenced American policy in wartime? Well, the idea itself, part of the problem, I remember when I wrote the book proposal for the Why America Loses Wars, it's about limited war. And when I wrote the book proposal, one of the things I argued in it was that the way we define it is not very clear. And the referee came back and said, yes, you're absolutely right, but I don't see how you're going to fix this because even if you're right, people have talked about it this way for so long. It's just an overwhelming, probably impossible task. And I read that. I was like, yeah, the reviewer's probably right here. <laughs> it's a, getting people to change the way they think about things and define something in the field, especially after they've been doing it for decades is exceedingly difficult and is probably forlorn. But the whole idea of limited war, the way it's discussed is so broken that it has had enormously bad influence on American foreign policy. Now, if you hear the term limited war, the confusion rests, well, what do you really mean by this? And I can show you a hundred different definitions, most of which are contradictory. Sometimes the elements of it definition will be inherently contradictory. The biggest flaw in it that most of the thinking on limited war, so-called limited war, is means-based. By this, they look at the amount of force or the level of force, the level of troops being used and say, oh, this must be limited because or constrained because we are calling this a limited war. But that doesn't give you any really basis of analysis. Well, what might be quote-unquote limited for you isn't limited for anyone else or might not be limited for the other country. So it's a broken concept. 
And so what I just went back to Clausewitz and Clausewitz talks about their wars are fought for regime change or they're fought for something less than this. And Sir Julian Corbett, the naval theorist, he poses on Clausewitz the term limited war, meaning a war not fought for regime change. And so that's the way that I break it out, because using the Clausewitz Corbett foundation, this gives you a foundation for every war and each combatant in the war, because you look at what the political aim is that the combatant wants. What do they want? Do they have a defensive aim? They just want to keep what they have. Okay, then Clausewitz says, how much is that object important to them? How valuable is it? This will determine or influence everything else they do, how hard they fight, where they fight, when they fight, how long they fight. By working from the political aim, it provides a really ironclad foundation and a firm foundation for them doing all the analysis for all the other things that come into it. Now, how this has affected this whole idea of limited war has affected the United States. When you start really from the 50s onward, you have this development of this gigantic limited war theory. My bibliography, this typescript for the bibliography for the book was 100 pages long, which shows you the quantity of the material that's available for it. But most of it is just horrendous stuff. I wouldn't recommend anybody reading hard. There are four or five pieces out of the entire 100 pages that are as far as the stuff on is actually unlimited war that's worth reading. So you end up with this enormous body of thought that confuses peace and war, that is entirely means-based in its analysis, and that because it has a, it's bad theory and bad history, because a lot of it draws its lessons from the Korean War, which all the things it says supposedly happened in the Korean War are wrong. So you've got bad theory and bad history and bad foundation for analysis, but we've constructed an entire way, an entire body of literature, an entire approach to warfare based on completely flawed data. I thought this was a problem. And so the book explores the ideas behind it, but also how the various limited war ideas affected particularly Vietnam and the Gulf War and some of the other things that we've done and how it's affected our, it so corrupted our ability to think about war that we have very uneven approaches to the way that we think about it. And generally, how you know has this thinking from the 1950s, the Korean War driven Do you think it's driven America to become involved in more wars or less wars? I think it's driven not necessarily the involvement and the level of involvement, but the damage has been in the way we become involved in these wars. Because part of the thinking for the limited war theorists, they were very concerned about a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union, and rightfully so. To not be concerned about it would be insane. But because they were so concerned about that, they clouded their reasoning about the actual wars that we were involved in. And they came up with these concepts where literally you will see in a lot of the literature that if you're fighting a quote unquote limited war, you can't win. So if you start to win, you really need to stop. But they didn't carry the logic out with that. So what does this mean that you're going to war and you're not planning to win? So you're going to send these men and women to war, but you're telling them they can't win. Now, this is the idea that got stuck in a lot of the American writing, and you'll see it on both sides of the political spectrum and from civilians and military leaders and in very odd places, and it continues even until today. If you're not going to try to win the war, how long is the war going to last? Does it ever end? You could never get a 19-year war. No, so you see that the problem you have, it just breaks the whole logic stream about this. This is something that didn't exist in American thinking before the Cold War, this whole idea that you would go to war and not try to win it. This is just nuts. People before 1950 would have thought that was insane. But you can see that I have pages and pages of quotes arguing this. And I, in fact, found another one two nights ago reading Ben Rhodes's memoir, 
he was one of the assistant national security advisors in the Obama administration. He's talking about in 2009 when they're doing the reassessment for Afghanistan. And he's writing Obama's 2009 speech. And he says, we made an effort to take out every illusion and every discussion of victory. And so this hits me, okay, you're sending tens of thousands of men and women to Afghanistan to fight a war and you don't intend to win it. But we've been doing that for a very long time now. So you have problems like that. And then you have flawed ideas. And I'll irritate all of the entire international affairs community, but quickly Thomas Schelling's ideas are particularly broken because they're not based on any historical fact. And you see the implementation of his ideas on air power in the Vietnam War, famously during Operation Rolling Thunder, where you're going to gradually apply pressure to the enemy and force them to the table and more detailed than that. But essentially, it's an example of limited war thinking where it confuses, it doesn't understand how to use the means involved and doesn't understand that you have to use sufficient means to get the political aim that you want and doesn't understand that sometimes using military force is not the answer, especially when you're trying to do something that is impossible to accomplish, trying to force the North Vietnamese to stop infiltrating into South Vietnam just by bombing the jungle in Laos and then bombing other places in North Vietnam as well. I always ask my students, if you're going to bomb people, make sure you're bombing the right people. But how much does bombing Laos help us, especially when you're not at war with Laos? So it leads to some illogic on my part. And you think more broadly speaking, sort of the way that America has defined these sort of limited goals has limited the necessary military force that is often required to achieve victory in these different conflicts? I don't know that it's necessarily that because of the goal itself, you know, is a limited goal. In other words, we're not trying to impose regime change. We're trying to do something less than that. I think more because People tend to look at the word limited and they say small. And so because it's small, which is not a rational way to do it, but it's just implied. So then they think, okay, not going to take as much to accomplish this. And so they bring this whole idea of scale into it, which is irrelevant, actually. Because, for example, you'll see the Iraq War in 2003 listed as a limited war. You'll see that all over the place. This wasn't a limited war. It's a war fought for an unlimited aim to overthrow another regime. No, it's not particularly limited. Same way Korea is not really a limited war either in the sense that we change the objective. So when we decide to conquer North Korea, it becomes, for our purposes, a war for an unlimited aim. So you have this confusion there with that, but then this leads to the confusion of saying, okay, if you don't really understand the mission, then if you don't understand the effect that the aim has on what you're doing and the effect the aim has on other people, this is bad because you don't understand what it's going to take the country to do to achieve the aim. Back to the Iraq example. Okay, this is a war fought for an unlimited aim in 2003. It's going to take X amount of force, material power to achieve this aim, which is done. It's a stunning victory, stunning overthrow of the regime. But then the administration changed the aim. No longer it's just overthrowing the regime. It's going to be rebuilding a country and building a democracy in Iraq. That wasn't part of the original plan. That wasn't what was originally intended, but they didn't make the jump intellectually and say, okay, we've changed the aim. This means we've changed the force requirements. This means we've changed how much means this is going to take. This means we've changed how long this is going to take. This means we have altered what the effect of what we're doing is going to have on the third party countries that are observing what we're doing and really don't like it. That means they are now going to act. So it has all of these spillover effects that were not part of the calculation with it. And you see this over and over historically, change the aim, you change the mission, you change the mission, you change the force requirements, you change the effects of everybody around you, and some of them don't like it. 
And to get into more specific case studies, starting with the Cold War, how are these sort of various concepts of limited warfare applied to both Korea and Vietnam? In Korea, there's not a coherent application of these bad limited war ideas. They develop from Korea, from the so-called lessons from Korea. But you already saw people writing during the Korean War. In 1951, even people started writing that it was too dangerous to win it and we should not try to win it. And you also had in Korea this modern refusal by American leaders to call a war and simply not recognize it was a war. Truman refused to call it a war. You know, he was asked by journalists, is it a war? Are we in war in Korea? No. And, so, and he refuses to call it a war in his memoir, except in one place, you know, when he talks about what someone else says. And he just refuses to do that, which the first step toward resolving a problem is to admit you have it. So you get that problem from Korea that carries on in some respects till today. As far as specifically in Vietnam, again, back to Schelling's limited war ideas, but also related to that, the idea of signaling, that you can signal to the enemy your resolve. The problem with that is you're assuming that they're seeing the same thing you are, which is part of the problem with the Rolling Thunder bombing campaign. But you see this kind of signaling nonsense carried through even until very recently here. You see it in the Nixon Kissinger's outreach to China. They're trying to signal to the Chinese that they want better relations. And Mao is like, I never saw any of this. There's this assumption that you can signal and they see it. You saw the same thing just recently when Soleimani was killed you know, in Iraq. And I read this article by someone I knew writing about, oh, this is uh, Trump signaling to the Iranians that he's going to be more aggressive and these various other things. No signaling involved in the negotiations afterward. Trump's actually negotiating and talking to them and warning them, there's a better way to put it, through Swiss intermediaries, we find out later. This doesn't work as simply as some of the theorists would like it to, to work. And specifically in Korea, where are there opportunities to achieve a full victory and what policy decisions ultimately led to the indecisiveness that ultimately became the Korean War? The big problem is the Truman administration, after it got burned so badly with the Chinese intervention, they want out of it so much, and they so much do not want to commit any forces to it, that the first chance they get to negotiate a peace, they grasp at it. And this is the famous incident in June of 1951, when General Van Fleet, who's the operational commander on the ground, the Chinese army has been broken by its number of offensives and the counteroffensives the UN forces have lost. This army's shattered. It's about to come apart. Van Fleet wants to launch an offensive and break it. His boss, Ridgeway, who's now the area commander, let him do it for a whole host of reasons that are not necessarily bad reasons. But one of them is we're talking about having a ceasefire, so let's not do anything. And the administration certainly doesn't want to do it either. Ridgeway won't even approach them with it because you've got these negotiations for a ceasefire. They don't have a ceasefire, but you start having peace talks. But this slows down everything that's happening on the front. We find out later, which we were warned about at the time by Sigmund Rhee, the South Korean leader, he said, these guys just want a breather, the communist force, which is exactly what happened. We know that Mao agreed to the initial talks because he needed a two-month breather to put his forces back together and resupply them. And they talked long enough. They talked the two months and they restarted offensive operations in August, which is what he planned to do all along. So it's a hard decision. All these decisions at the top are hard. It's easy for us to look back and criticize them. But you have this over and over you know, in Korea, this refusal to use enough force to end the war. The criticism leveled at Truman is that they missed this opportunity because of this. The war goes on for two more years. And then you have 40% of American casualties in this other two-year period. So if you had 
went ahead and fought the war out in 51, maybe you put enough pressure on the enemy to force them to come to the table then and you don't get the two-year war. Maybe you don't is the other side of it. Maybe you defeat the Chinese army and you aren't able to bring them to the table even at that point. That's certainly possible. But that's always part of the guessing game in some respects with this. And then specifically with Vietnam, was application of force the main problem or was it something else? That's a hard one because one of the criticisms leveled at the Johnson administration is that they don't use enough force. You'll get a hundred different answers for this one because it's so complex and so many different varies. But I don't think that was a problem with the Johnson administration. They did commit huge amounts of force on the ground and in the air. I think it's not a matter of what of their willingness to use it or lack of willingness. They were certainly willing, but it's a matter of how it's applied. I think obviously the Rolling Thunder Air campaign is a waste in many ways of just men and material. And politically, it's a problem. It does have some effects. It does hurt North Vietnamese, but is it worth the other costs is a fair question to ask. But on the ground, the biggest failure is to successfully build legitimacy for the South Vietnamese government. If you can't do that, which may not be possible by an outside power, is the other thing to consider with that. If you can't do that, if you aren't willing to stay basically for a very, very, very long time, it's very difficult for you to get your political aim of preserving South Vietnam at that point. But then that raises a whole host of questions. Okay, if you have to build legitimacy for this power, how do you do it? And that could take, oh gosh. (laughs) So it's an endless argument with that. But that seems to me to be the key right there, building legitimacy for the South Vietnamese government. But you've got a government that in some respects is not willing to build legitimacy for itself or even able to. So that makes everything else exceedingly difficult. And so you add to this all the problems of the insurgency as well and physical invasion of North Vietnam and you factor an outside power in a foreign country. How much credibility can you have with the people? It's an endless list. I don't have a simple answer because there isn't one. And to get into the more modern conflicts, specifically the Persian Gulf War, Iraq and Afghanistan, do you think there's sort of a distinction between these sort of post-Cold War conflicts or do you think a lot of the same mistakes have been repeated? I think it's more repetition. It's the same errors often, not understanding the objective, not being able to clearly end the war, not understanding how important it is to end the war, not supplying enough means to achieve the aim you've laid out, not understanding the effect of third-party actors, whether it's the Chinese in Korea, the Chinese in Vietnam, the Iranians in 2003, and so on, Pakistan now. (laughs) So yeah, I think there's more repetition than not. And Do you think the added problems with Iraq and Afghanistan in particular of trying to wage this sort of counterinsurgency campaign and build legitimacy with these host governments makes these campaigns even more difficult? Oh, yes. Very much more difficult, especially when you're not willing to commit enough forces to do it, which is certainly the case. One of the big failures in Iraq was committing insufficient forces to do the job to do the counterinsurgency and to do the rebuilding. It takes enormous numbers of people to do it and not a very nice place to do it. And do you think the broader problem with American foreign policy, you know, in war is that we can't seem to define what victory is, which, you know, ultimately leads to these sort of endless conflicts? Like Sometimes that is the case, yeah. Understanding what victory looks like. What, how do you define victory? Well, victory is achieving your political aim. Well, you really should understand your political aim. Sometimes we understand it, sometimes we don't, which is interesting. In some of the research I've done in Afghanistan, it's been going on for so long and the administrations have changed and their aims have changed so much. It's very difficult. I sometimes can't sort it out. What's interesting is you'll often see interviews with some of the American commanders that they don't understand the aim. 
are not really completely sure what they're supposed to be doing there, which is frightening and unfortunate for them. But that also is something that is an odd thing because sometimes the administrations will have an aim, but the men and women who are responsible for accomplishing aren't really informed about what it is. The administration has done a really bad job of telling them. There's a famous book called On Strategy by Harry Summers about Vietnam, which it's an interesting book and an important book, but I find some problems with it. But it is great for so many different things because one of the things he says in it, he says, oh, the big problem is the United States doesn't have a clear political aim in Vietnam. It doesn't know what it wants to accomplish. And it's understandable why he says that, because he says he interviewed, I forget the number, but it was dozens and dozens of former American generals who had served in Vietnam or had some connection to it, and none of them could tell him the aim. So Harry Summers logically has a good argument for what he's doing, but the fact is he's wrong. It's not that there isn't a name. I've read the policy documents from the Johnson and Kennedy administrations that will tell you, here is the political aim in Vietnam, and it'll say a non-communist independent Vietnam. So there is a name, and the Johnson administration knows what the aim is, but the guys that are fighting the war don't know what the aim is, which that's a real problem, because how do they know what they're supposed to accomplish if you don't know what your job actually is to achieve? And how much do you think politicians contribute to this problem? Do they play a bigger role than the generals? Who really dictates these sorts of policies? It's one of those things there's plenty of blame to go around. I mean, the political leaders, their job under the American constitutional system is to determine the political aim. That is not the job of the American military officer. Their job is to execute the military aim. That's the way the American system works. And it's the better way to make it work as well, I think. But the difficulty is that sometimes the political leaders don't understand how important it is for them to lay out a name. And unfortunately, sometimes the American military leaders don't understand how important it is for them to basically badger. Sometimes they have to badger and compel the essentially beg, maybe even sometimes to get the political leaders to actually give them a name. There's a famous incident during the Gulf War where Colin Powell is chairman of the JCS and Dick Cheney is secretary of defense then. And after the Iraqis have invaded Kuwait, I'll get the tales probably a little wrong, but basically it boils down to this. Cheney wants some options about how to use military force against the Iraqis in Kuwait. And Powell says, yes, sir, of course. What is the political aim that you want to achieve? And Cheney goes, I want some options. And Powell's like, yes, sir, what is the aim? And eventually this melts down because Powell's asking the right question. He's done this over and over and several times where he's very much Clausewitz in the thought process for that, where he insists upon having the political aim because he knows there's going to be a disaster probably if you don't. But the political leaders don't necessarily think that way, which is the oddest thing. I talked about this with my political scientist friends. I say, okay, why is it that political scientists who are supposed to be talking about politics never talk about the political aim? I said, historians, we do it sometimes, usually by accident, not intentionally, by accident. Not very rarely do we actually start out to do that, because this is the foundation for doing analysis. If you don't know that, know what the aim is, and sometimes there is no aim. Okay, if there isn't, then you need to know that as well, because that's going to be where the problems come from. But if you don't know the aim, how do you do the analysis? And do you think this sort of failure to define political objectives or goals sort of build into this problem that America has in sort of ending these conflicts? Yes, I think that's part of it. Having the political aim is one thing, but being able to achieve the political aim obviously is another. But if you understand the political aim and if you're able to achieve it, then being able to solidify it is really exceedingly difficult as well. And to me, having a vision of what victory looks like is part of having that aim. 
but sometimes you don't get the aim. You have to alter this, which is part of the reality of it. But in the Limited War book, the Why America Loses Wars book, the last chapter is about the problems ending wars. And when I started doing my research for this book, this chapter actually ended up being to me the most interesting to write and also in many ways the most difficult because how do you figure out what are the parameters for ending the war? What are the things that really matter, especially when every war is different? And I was fortunate to have taught for the Naval War College for nearly two decades because some of the people who had developed the course, particularly I think Brad Lee, who's retired now, he's a brilliant lecturer. But he and others over the decades had come up with this partial methodology for doing this where they had three big questions they asked. What is the political aim? How far do you go militarily or how do you use military force to get this? And then who's going to enforce the peace and how? And there are three really wonderful questions that you have to consider all at the same time. They're not consider ABC. It's they're completely interlinked because all of this goes together. But then using that and then looking at what are the different factors coming into ending the war is really critical. And one thing with uh, my old boss, George Bear, told me, pointed out to me years ago, he said, remember, wars for limited aims are almost always settled by negotiation, which is really critical because it's not like the Second World War where you're conquering the people completely and imposing a peace on them. There's going to come a point where you're going to have to sit down and talk to these people on the other side. That changes everything. Because you may not be forcing a piece on them. It means you're going to be talking a piece out. So how do you put them in a position where you can get them to give you what you want? So do you do it militarily? How do you do that then? If you do it militarily, it raises a whole host of questions. But then it still also goes back to you really better understand what your aim is and whether or not you've achieved it. But then you have the added factor, you throw in a coalition of powers where you're fighting in Korea, you have the South Koreans have different aims than you have. In South Vietnam, we want to end the war and get out. The South Vietnamese government is not happy with the settlement because they essentially know it will mean the destruction of South Vietnam. But the Nixon administration browbeats them into taking it, bribes and browbeats you know, between aid and we're going to leave you all alone if you don't take the deal. So that adds so many factors with it, trying to end it and trying to get a peace that you can actually maintain. You think about the problems of the Gulf War, how we end up with this long containment afterward and the sanctions regime erodes because people get tired of it. But if you don't end the war properly, maybe you get to do it again. So we get the Second World War and we're fighting the third Iraq War now or then the tail end of it. And part of the problem of failing to acknowledge, you know, when we are at war, I know you mentioned Korea, the example for me comes with Afghanistan. Do you think that lack of awareness in the American mainstream make these conflicts go on? Yeah, because if you're not at war, you don't have to win. If you're not at war, you don't have to win. If you don't have to win, you don't have to end it. It doesn't actually work that way intellectually where people make this connection, but that ends up being the effect of it. And if you're not at war, then it doesn't really matter what happens, does it? Again, I don't think people actually make that intellectually decide that, but that ends up being the effect of it. So it results in not taking it seriously. You end up with almost a negligence of it, which is odd. I think I don't have an explanation for that. I think it's just a refusal to face it and unwillingness to. The politicians don't want to deal with it very often, especially when they inherit it. It becomes difficult for them to figure out. And broadly speaking, what policy changes do you think you know, need to be changed or can be made by American policymakers to actually win war or at least make more sound judgments about, you know, how to go to war or end wars. Know what you want when you get there, when you're doing it. To me, that's so important. I think about that clearly. You say the word policy, which is interesting. I can't figure out what it means because I've been arguing with my political science friends over this as well. 
is it what you want or is it what you're doing or is it a set of guidelines? And it ends up depending on how people use it. I say always say go back to starting with the political aim or political objective, what you want to achieve. That's a foundation. It's just there. It influences everything else that you do. Is this going to determine where you're going to fight the war, how long you're going to fight the war, what you're going to use to fight the war, who else is going to be involved in the war? It's going to influence everything else and it's going to influence how it ends as well. And do you think there are changes that need to be made to account for this revival of great power competition with states such as China and Russia? Yeah, back to something I mentioned earlier, this confusion between peace and war that you're seeing. One of the big buzzwords the last really five to eight years, really last four to five years in the strategic studies community is the whole idea there's this gray zone between peace and war. And people don't realize the danger this is. If you don't know if you're at peace at war, if you don't know what you're doing is peaceful war, you're going to end up with a real war. And so you see that and what people are confusing subversion and what used to be called competition between great powers and diplomacy. They're confusing this as being something close to war, but not quite, which is a dangerous way to look at. Part of it is just ignorance of how states have traditionally behaved since the time of Thucydides. If you read Thucydides, you'll see there's nothing you're seeing today except computers that these guys didn't do. So there's that confusion with it. But if you don't understand there's a difference between peace and war, this is critical because the actions you take in wartime, particularly with military forces, are marriage very much different than what you're doing peacetime or what you were allowed to do in peacetime is much more restricted. This matters when you're dealing with other countries. So you've certainly got that problem as one I see today, which is, I think, particularly dangerous. And I don't see why we constantly are in this every new buzzword that comes along. So I jokingly say, I didn't realize that great power competition had stopped and then suddenly had restarted. I thought it had been going on forever. So I think it's just a misreading sometimes of history and people forget their history. And my final question is for young people that are sort of interested in any of these fields, what lessons can be taken away, particularly from your book, uh, Why America Loses Wars? Think about what you're doing. And remember, none of it's easy. It's exceedingly complex. I would tell my students, it's great for us to sit here in the room and critique these guys. It's so easy. We're sitting in a nice air-conditioned room in Monterey, California. But these guys that have to make the decisions are very hard. But that doesn't mean we don't look at what they did and try to learn from it and try to and critique it when they do make decisions. Learning to think clearly is really important, also really difficult. And I think good theory is a way to do that and knowledge of history as well. But I think part of the problem is the way a lot of the things are being taught. The theory is just so broken. I don't begin to recall how much theory I've read over the last 20 years, but they're so much better than the new stuff. The new stuff is just detached from history. Peter Perret says, theory is detached from history and logic. It's bad theory. If it's detached from the way humans actually behave, it's bad theory. And I think that's important, but good theory, good history. So I hope you enjoy that interview with Dr. Stoker. You know, I personally did. You know, my main lessons are that, you know, America's had, you know, a challenge of trying to define what victory is, especially, you know, in all these different conflicts. And when you don't define what victory is, it makes it impossible to, you know, achieve. You know, in particular, like Afghanistan for me comes to mind because I was born in 1999. We got into Afghanistan in 2001. And we're still there. There's, I think, around I think 8,500 troops right now. In general, it seems so removed from the American mainstream that it's, you know, American soldiers are still being killed in this conflict. So by that definition, we were at, we would be a war. But 
I find it troubling that these conflicts continue to go on. And like I said before the interview, I think that it almost certainly is going to end in negotiations. We're currently in negotiations with the Taliban. And what that looks like, I'm not exactly sure. But again, just it's odd to think that for 19 of my 21 years, we've been in Afghanistan at war in some capacity. But that definition of war, you know, is so removed from the American mainstream that it makes it very dangerous, in my opinion, because it it allows these conflicts to go on and on and on. Because now we're in three different administrations and I doubt that the peace will be resolved by election day. And if Joe Biden is elected, that'll be four administrations. And, you know, we saw this in Vietnam, for example, with, I believe, four administrations, because you had Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford in various capacities. So, you know, when we have these priorities shift, I think it creates these serious problems with the way that we prosecute war, the way that we carry out war and all these sorts of things. I mean, there's been a ton of literature on, you know, sort of these forever wars, the way that the removal of this idea of war from American mainstream sort of allows these conflicts to go on. And I mean, it'll be interesting to see how much of a role that in particular, like Afghanistan, American foreign policy plays in these presidential debates and the sort of the rhetoric behind. I doubt it will because of COVID and the social justice movements and the economic problems that the US is facing. But, you know, I would hope that, you know, the Biden administration could reevaluate it. But part of my hesitation is that the Biden administration, you know, I wonder how many of those people from the Obama administration will carry over. I think you mentioned Ben Rhodes, for example, who I enjoy you know, listening to his podcast and some of the work he's done. But again, I think he sort of, you know, when he said, you know, we don't know what victory is and that just, you know, and you can change those goals, for example. And I'm hoping to do a specific episode on the Afghanistan war because it's dragged on for so long. And it just, for me personally, it's just odd to think that we've been so deeply involved in that country, but nothing's really changed. So I hope you enjoyed that interview. I hope you definitely look at you know some of his work. I know I really enjoyed it. And I'm hoping to do some of these more episodes behind sort of the thinking and the philosophy of history when it comes to both war, but not just a war, but really in general. So, you know, I hope you enjoy it. Feel free, you know, to give me any feedback on this in particular. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end, and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.